Well, in case you missed it, today is the day that we are starting a study on toxic relationships. And in a weird, ironic twist, it's also my wedding anniversary. Uh, completely unrelated, just way it worked out. But as of today, I have been married 41 years. to 17 different women. <laughs> now listen, there's only one girl for me. I'll show you why. Take a look at this picture. Come on, right? That was one of the first, when they started using modern photography, that was one of the very first pictures that was ever taken. And you know, life brings changes, right? We don't still exactly look and act. This morning, I came into church and Margaret had brought the donuts and she brought me an apple fritter and it was like this brown bag with the grease coming through it and she had written with like a crayon she found in the floor of the car happy anniversary not quite the same you know as it was so now we look different now you know we look like that but we're still happy we still love each other but married people you know this is true it ain't always like that huh sometimes it's more yeah so, <laughs> I have, listen, I have a great relationship with Margaret. Margaret loves me. And she's nice to me. And she prays for me. And she roots for me. And in a lot of ways, she sacrifices what's best for her, for me. She makes me laugh. She likes me like I am, and yet she gives me room to grow. She defends me, she sticks up for me. I'll tell you, if you ever have a complaint against me, you better give it to me directly. Okay, because you, you come at me and I'll, I might argue with you, but you come at her and somebody's getting hurt if you're gonna tell her something bad about me. And so, yeah, I, I can trust her, I can depend on her, and I can tell you that I think she would do anything, anything for me. And she would do anything for our relationship. And I hope that you have a relationship like that in your life. But I also know that a lot of us have relationships that aren't like that. A lot of us have relationships that are not that great. A lot of us have relationships that are, that are bad. And some of us even have relationships that are toxic. That are, that are literally poison. A relationship that is just, just sucking the life right out of you. And as we get into this thing, I don't want to misunderstand. I'm not talking about a good friend who you have an occasional disagreement with. That's not a toxic relationship. And I'm not talking about a great parent who occasionally makes a mistake. That's not a toxic relationship. And I'm not talking about a boss that can get cranky or a little sister that ate the last piece of cake, or a otherwise wonderful wife who tries to tell you how to drive all the time. No, that one is toxic. I, I go back. I'm talking about people that just seem to be like determined to just suck the joy out of your life, to make you miserable, to just ruin you with their whatever, their anger or their hate, or their indifference, or their words, or their lies, or their irresponsibility. I'm talking about people that you can only describe 
as toxic joy suckers. In fact, I'm thinking about getting t-shirts made that say toxic joy sucker. And we could give them as gifts. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome on Christmas morning? Hey, mother-in-law, got a little something for you here. <laughs> Jesus said he came to give us life, but not just any life. He said he came to give us rich life, satisfying life, abundant life. And these toxic joy suckers, they seem to be determined to keep that from happening. And like Baskin Robbins, they come in, you know, at least 31 flavors. There's all kinds of toxic joy suckers. Maybe he's your dad, but he just won't do what a dad ought to do. He just will not be responsible. He will not love you. He will not care for you. He will not show up for you and provide for you and protect you. And so, yeah, you wait for him and you pray for him and you hope he's going to change, but he just continuously lets you down. And it's like the harder you try, the worse it gets and the more it hurts. It's not just a bad relationship. That's poison. That's a toxic relationship. Or maybe it's an ex-wife that's constantly bad-mouthing you to your kids and you're just trying to make things work, but it seems like she just gets pleasure out of you being in pain. Or maybe it's an ex-husband who refuses to take care of the kids or be responsible. It could be a friend that stole your boyfriend or a co-worker that stole your idea. Um, it could be an authority figure, like a parent or a teacher or a coach or a pastor that just always has something negative for you, just always bringing you down and constantly making you feel bad about yourself. Um, it could be an abusive spouse. And maybe that's what you have. And you've, you've, you've kept saying, well, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I don't have to do this. not my life. But you just feel like stuck or trapped. And it's like they know that. Maybe it's somebody that claims to be your friend but seems to just want to make you unhappy. And you keep asking, why? What, why are they doing this? Why, what did I do to make them hate me like this? Maybe it's a cruel boss that's taking advantage of you. Or maybe it's a gossipy neighbor that's always lying about you. Maybe it's a friend who's always trying to get you to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Maybe it's a relative that's taking advantage of you. It could be a spouse that cheats on you. I mean, you can insert your own, right? Everybody seems to know somebody that just seems like their life goal is making you miserable. And you know what? Maybe they don't even know they're doing it. Or maybe they do know they know they're doing it. And they just don't care. And you've tried, you know, talking with them and praying for them and apologizing to them. And you've tried changing your own behavior. But it's like they just, they just want you to be unhappy. They just want you to be, they don't want you to have rich, satisfying, abundant life. And here's what's hard. The real toxic joy suckers are not strangers. Right? That'd be easy. Right? If a stranger treats you mean, you just knock him in the head, roll him up in a rug, throw him in the river. <laughs> oh, hang on, I read that wrong. Hold on. If a stranger treats you mean, you forgive them and move on with your life. But whatever you do with a stranger, it's easy with a stranger, right? Because you don't have to see them again. But the real toxic joy suckers aren't just mean strangers that are passing through your life. They're people that you have a relationship with. 
and that relationship is just sucking the joy from your life. It's, it's toxic, it's poisoning your life. And no matter how you work at the relationship and no matter how hard you try to make things right, they just seem determined to hurt you. And since you're in a relationship with them, it's like, it's hard to see. How am I ever not gonna feel like this? How am I ever gonna experience this rich, satisfying life that Jesus died to give me? So just curious with that little description, how many of you would say that at some point in your life you've experienced a toxic relationship? Ugh. How many of you would be like really transparent and say you're in a toxic or potentially toxic relationship right now? It's a lot. How many of you are sitting with them? No, don't. <laughs> These people, it's like, it's surprising when people do this to us, isn't it? It's like, how, why? Why do they keep doing it? I thought, I thought they were gonna be nice now. I thought they were through with that. I thought we were past that. It's like, it's like a surprise to us when people treat us that way. But it's encouraging to me to know that it's not a surprise to God because God has been dealing with toxic relationships and toxic people since forever, since Genesis, literally. He's seen it a million times. And in fact, if you look in the Word, you'll see there's lots of stories of super toxic relationships. Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, uh, Sarah and Hagar, Samson and Delilah, Jesus and Judas. These are toxic relationships, man. And they're in the Bible for a reason. And the reason is not so that we can see those people as heroes or something. The reason is so that we can see their story in our story, right? And then we can see what worked for them and what didn't work for them. And we can see how God fits into all of this. So today, we're gonna start for the next couple of weeks, I think, and just see what we can learn about our toxic relationships um, by looking at maybe the most toxic relationship in history. And that's the relationship between Saul and David. And as we do that, remember, we're, this is not just an interesting story, right? How does this apply to your life? Think of your toxic relationships and let's compare this relationship and let's just kind of see what we can learn. Um, you probably know this story, um, uh, at least part of the story. It's, uh, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and it's 31 chapters in 1 Samuel. So we're going to look at chapters 14 through 31 today. So if you've got lunch plans, you might want to cancel them. Um, you know the story. We'll just kind of skip through it, okay? So 1 Samuel 14, um, Saul's the king of Israel, God's chosen people, and God has specifically chosen Saul to be the king. And he's like super successful. He is super popular. He is brave. He is smart. His approval rating is through the roof. He's tall. The Bible tells us a hundred times how tall he's tall and he's good looking and the people love him. And he's, he's a pretty good king. He's a good leader, uh, especially with the military stuff, which was a lot of that going on back then. This is uh, 1 Samuel 14, 48 says, everywhere Saul turned, he was victorious and he performed great deeds and saved Israel from all who had plundered them. So at this point, it seems like Israel's like always at war. Right? They're always being attacked and plundered by Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Amalekites and especially the Philistines. But King Saul's awesome. He's built this big, strong army, and they're, they're holding their own, man. In fact, they're kicking some Amalekite butt. But one day, 
probably because he wanted to become even more famous and even more popular, King Saul decides to disobey God. And when that happens, it's like God's done with him. It's like we can't have you know, the king of God's people disobeying God. And so God calls the prophet Samuel, who wrote the book, and he tells him, you're gonna have to break the news to Saul. And so Samuel calls Saul and he goes, hey, you know, bad news, like, you're out. And it's really, it's pretty ugly. It's, uh, if you look in uh, chapter 15, verse 24, Samuel's like, Saul is like begging him, you know, well, put in a word, man. Just can't you say something to God and like change his mind or something? And Samuel's like, no, this is, this is what's happening. And as, as Saul's like begging him, Samuel's like, no, you're out. And he turns to walk away and Samuel, or Saul like grabs his shirt. No, wait, wait, wait. And as he walks off, his shirt like tears off. And so Samuel looks back at him and he says, just as my shirt was torn away from me, the spirit of the Lord is torn away from you. So it's like, really? It's harsh, man. He, he's come give me another chance. Give me, and Samuel says, no, God's going to give your crown to someone better than you. So this is, a, this is a pretty tough time, really, for Saul. And it takes several years, but it happens. Um, Saul loses his power, and he loses his prestige, and he loses his life. But during that time, while he was still the king, God tells Samuel, we're going to need another king now, and so I'm going to direct you to who it's going to be so that you can anoint him. So go to Jesse's house. He's got a bunch of sons. I'll tell you which one it is. You know which one it was. He gets there, and he chooses David. And yeah, God says, that's the one. Samuel says, okay, he's the one. He pours oil on his head. Boom. He's anointed to be the next king of Israel, but not now. Not now. It's gonna, it's gonna take a while. So for right now, David, who we don't know, but probably like a young teenager at this time, um, he's working on his dad's sheep ranch. He's like, a, he's a shepherd, he's like a ranch hand. And so meanwhile, <laughs> David's living his life and Saul is losing it. He can't believe God, you know, he called me and he put me in this place and I blew it and my life is over and I'm gonna lose all my power. And he starts, it says he's tormented by an evil spirit. He just, he just can't get over it. It's like depression or I don't anxiety or migraines. I don't know. He's got fits of rage where he's just like losing it because he just, he's just so distraught. And so his advisors, you know, this is like before Valium, right? So his advisors say, well, you're, you're falling apart, man. We got to do something to calm you down. Let's hire a musician to come in and play some soothing music for you. Maybe that'll calm you down. And it actually works. And they hire a young kid who's a great musician. Can you guess who it was? It's David, right? So now, like I said, he's, he's probably still a young teenager or something, but he's a great musician, so he gets his, it's like a part-time job, right? It's better than flipping burgers, right? So he's going to go to Saul. Whenever Saul's worked up, he's going to play the harp, and that's going to calm him down. And yeah, it works great. First Samuel 16, 21 says David did a great job, and Saul loved David. Okay, you guys with me so far? You with me so far? I can start this thing over. Okay, so now let's fast forward a couple of years, right? David's, I don't know, 18? I don't know, 20? Or something like that. And since that harp gig, he's been still working at his dad's ranch. He's got older brothers, and all of them are soldiers. 
in Saul's army. And they're at war as they always are with the Philistines. And so his dad wonders how it's going on the front lines where his sons are up there, right? So he's wondering what's going on. They don't have CNN. How's he supposed to know what's happening? So he tells little David, hey, do me a favor. Go to the front lines and, you know, take these cookies or whatever to your brother. Give some to the captain and maybe he'll let you get some information or whatever. And then come tell me what's going on. So now we're in chapter 17. Everybody knows this part. This is where David gets there. He's bringing the cookies to his brothers. And as he gets there, it's like on, there's this valley, right? And on one side, all the Israelites are camped and their army's all up there sharpening their swords or whatever. And on the other side, on the other mountain, the Philistines are over there, same deal. And so now David's there, he's giving his brothers cookies or whatever, and Goliath walks out. And Goliath is just this monstrous, killing machine, right? He's just this incredible soldier. He's nine feet tall. He's covered with brass and tattoos and just, he's mean looking and he's just a scary, horrible, intimidating guy. And so he makes like an offer. And this is really a common thing that they did. They call this battle by champion. And what he says is, look, instead of hundreds of our guys dying and hundreds of your guys dying, let's settle this an easy way. We'll send out our one best soldier, like the Olympics. You send out your best one soldier. Whoever wins, wins the war. And it's easy for them to say, they got Goliath. Right, so he's down there and he's taunting them. Well, all the Israelite guys are scared to death. And so he's like, send somebody out. I defy God. I defy God's army. I defy God's people. And David's there bringing cookies and he's going like, what the heck? Who is this? He's talking like that about God. I'll, I'll fight him. And so everybody like, you know, makes fun of him. He was a kid. What are you even talking about? And he goes, no, what, what happened? What, what if I do? What if I go out there and kill him? Here's what they said. First uh, Samuel 17, 25, the king has offered a huge reward to anybody that kills Goliath. And he will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. And the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. And David's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. And so David goes in to talk to Saul. He goes, hey, I'll take care of Goliath for you. And at first Saul is just like you would have been, right? Are you crazy? You're just a kid. Look at him, right? You're, this is insane. But David's, no, no, God's power is with me. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. I can just do this. And so Saul, maybe because he didn't want to go, right? It's interesting to me that the Bible keeps talking about how tall he is and how big he is and how strong he is and what a great warrior he is. So if they were going to send out their best man to face Goliath, who should it have been? Mm -hmm. I'm not judging, right? Mm. So Saul says, sure, send this kid out there with pimples on his face to face Goliath, right? So, you know, he gives him the armor. He can't do it. It's too heavy and all that stuff. So David says, just, just, I don't need that stuff. He picks up five rocks. You, you sang this in Sunday school, right? So he takes his five rocks. He throws it. It hits Goliath in the head. Goliath falls down. David goes over there, takes Goliath's own sword, which probably took like both hands, right? Kills him, cuts off his head. And like the Israel army goes nuts. Like, ah! and they just attack and the Philistine army goes nuts like oh, and they all run off and so they chase them down they beat them up they win the war this amazing incredible victory and what looked like a definite obvious defeat turns into a huge overwhelming victory how many of you have heard that story before okay well there's 10 minutes you never get back but you heard it again okay well here's where the story gets weird because now it's happened, right? And they bring David into Saul. He's in his tent or whatever he's got. And I, like, what would you think Saul would say? 
Right? Here comes this kid that's just saved his life for one thing, but sort of saved his whole country. Right? He's just saved his whole country. What, what do you think his, what, did, what should his response be to David? David's standing there covered with Goliath's blood, right? He's got Goliath's big old giant head under his arm or something. What, how do you think Saul should have responded to him? How about thank you, right? How about thanks for saving me personally? How about thanks for saving my kingdom, right? How about thanks for standing up when I was scared to stand up? How about which one of my daughters do you want? Remember the promise? Right? How about welcome to the family? How about here's a huge reward? Right? How about here's a tax exempt certificate? Something. Right? How about how, uh, here's, a new, here's a new chariot with a corner office in the palace or something? You would think he would just like bow down to David at this point, but look what he says. This, I, I don't even know what he's talking about. This 1758, his first words to David, he says, Tell me about your father. I don't even know what that means. Is he like examining his pedigree? Is he trying to decide if David's good enough for the promises that he already made him? Is he trying? I don't, I don't even know what he's doing, but I'll tell you one thing. I think he's disrespecting David, and he's doing it from the get-go, and it gets way worse than disrespect because in chapter 18, David goes to work for Saul full-time, and he's leading some army stuff and whatever, and he becomes fall, uh, friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and it seems like David's on the fast track, right? He's going to end up being the secretary of defense or something like that, but it just like all falls apart. And here's where it all falls apart. They're coming home from a big battle. I think that battle. And they're coming home from this battle. Remember when the Spurs won the championships and we would have those parades downtown? So they're coming home from this big battle. And yeah, there's confetti, man. There's mariachis. There's, you know, everybody's cheering and everything's wonderful. And they've even written a specific song to welcome the heroes home from battle. And so they're performing this song. These are the lyrics. It's like this. That's like the way it sounded. Here's, here's, here's the lyrics. They said, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul did not like that. He was, he'd, been killing, he'd been killing Philistines for years. And this kid's going to win one fight? They're gonna, he's, and he says, next thing you know, they'll make him king. Chapter 18, verse 9 says, From that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. If you think about your toxic people in your life, a lot of times that's kind of where it starts. So let's clarify something. What did David do wrong up to that point? Nothing. Nothing. Saul's just a psycho. So the next day or whatever, Saul's in the palace. David's playing the harp. Another day at the office. And Saul just goes nuts. The Bible says he was raving like a madman. And he picks up a spear and he throws it at David. And the Bible tells us his intention was to pin David to the wall. But, you know, David, he misses him or whatever. And David's what well, stop. What are you doing? And Saul goes, pulls it out of the wall and throws it at him again. And so somehow David gets away. It's interesting. Verse 12 says Saul was afraid of David. Another way that sometimes toxic people become toxic. He's jealous of David. He's scared of David. But for some reason, David stays loyal to him and still works for him. And pretty soon he's over a thousand men and he's doing a great job and he wins a bunch of battles. And the Bible says the more he wins, you would think Saul would start trusting him more and more, but instead he becomes more and more afraid of David. And Saul's daughter, Michael, falls in love with David 
And the Bible says, and when that happened, he became even more afraid of David, but it gives him another idea of a way he could kill David. And so this time he's going to trick him. And he says, hey, David, you know, how'd you like to marry my daughter, Michael? And David's like, well, I don't have the dowry or whatever. I don't have any money to bring or anything like that. And he goes, oh, that's okay. Um, you know, he was supposed to get his wife for night. He already killed Goliath. But he says, hey, how about this, David? You kill 100 Philistines and you can marry my daughter. And so he thinks, well, that's never going to happen. David's going to go out and get killed by these Philistines and my problem is over. And David goes out and instead kills 200 Philistines. And so now Saul's got a PR nightmare, right? Because everybody knows that he made this promise. And so, yeah, he gives his daughter Michael to David and she's all happy because she loves him. Verse 28 says, Saul became even more afraid of David. And this is important. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. He remained David's enemy. Not, he wasn't rude to him at the office. He was his enemy. He was toxic. His goal in life was to kill David. He chased him down. He went crazy. David went into hiding. David is running all over the country. He is hiding everywhere. Saul mobilized the entire Israeli army, took them out of battles, took them away from battlefronts, and told them, look, you only have one thing to focus on. You track down and kill David. That's all they cared about him for the rest of his life. Saul chased David all over the Middle East. And David is hiding in caves and he's running in town to town. He's just, he's just trying to stay alive. And this is a pretty powerful dude, right? And he's just trying to stay alive. How's that for toxic? And again, I'll ask you, what has David done wrong up until this point? Nothing, it has nothing to do with David. Saul is just crazy. Here's a taste of how crazy, right? Chapter 22, Saul gets it in his head. There's this bunch of priests that are all together. And Saul gets it in his head that those priests are on David's side. And so he goes to those priests and he goes, hey, how come you guys are trying to help David kill me? They're like, what are you talking about? We, 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 that's not happening. And Saul is so crazy, he kills them. 85 priests, the Bible tells us, still in their priestly robes. So he's like walks into the church where all these priests are together. And he goes, why are you guys helping David? Oh, we're not helping David. A bunch of his guys come in with swords and kill 85 priests. And then they go to those priests' houses and kill their wives and their kids and their babies and their livestock. He's, he, he's nuts. And David didn't do anything. This is 100% about Saul's like psychosis, his, his toxic anger and fear and jealousy and craziness. And here's the thing that I kind of want us to start seeing in this story. Saul's hate for David didn't make any sense. It didn't, David didn't do anything wrong. He's, he's a good boy. He's a good son. He's a good shepherd. He was a good employee. He was a good part-time harp player. Right? He loved God and he loved Israel. And he stood up to Goliath. He was faithful to Israel. He was faithful to Saul. But Saul treated him, in spite of who David really was, Saul treated him like a worthless, criminal, traitor, enemy of Israel. So, really weird story. Maybe some parts of that sound familiar to you with your toxic people. But I think there's a real important lesson to us as we're dealing with these wacko, toxic relationships. The fact that Saul treated David like a worthless, criminal, traitor, enemy of Israel didn't mean that David was a worthless criminal 
traitor, enemy of Israel. That's not who David was at all. And that was not who David was. David was one of God's chosen people. David was God's anointed king. David was a man after God's own heart. David was an ancestor of Jesus. And so the way that Saul treated David didn't match up with who David really was. The way that Saul saw David because of his own stuff was not who David was. And the way that Saul treated David because of his own stuff was not who David was. And I think it's important for us because so many times the toxic people in our lives, they're dealing with their own jealousy and fear and anger and demons and pain and craziness and their issues affect the way that they see us. And their issues affect the way they treat us. And all of a sudden, through no fault of our own sometimes, in their eyes, they, they see us as unlovable. They see us as the enemy. They see us as not good enough. They see us as not being worth their love. And that is really sad and really like hard and really frustrating and, and it's really hard to understand and over the next couple of weeks we'll talk about like how to how to deal with that but as we're starting this thing i think it's just important to remember that just because these broken toxic people see us as being unlovable or unimportant or ugly or weak that doesn't mean that we are unlovable or unimportant or ugly or weak any more than Saul seeing David as an enemy of Israel made that true. In fact, after all of that, if you just remember one thing today, if, if you're taking notes, write this down. If somebody next to you is asleep, punch them. This is, this is important right here. This is, this is the moment, right? We'll wrap it on the screen for you. Who you really are may affect how broken people treat you, but how broken people treat you does not affect who you are. We can't let them convince us that their weirdness and their anger and fear and frustration and pain or whatever demons they're going through, we can't let them convince us that we are the way they see us. It's not, it's not even about us. That's true for David and it's also true for you. Your toxic people can deride you and defile you and degrade you, but they can't define you. Right? They get to decide how they treat you but they don't get to decide who you are because who you are has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with their toxic, broken, joy-sucking perspective. Who you are has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with who you say you are. Who you are is who God says you are. And if we're gonna deal with these people for the next few weeks, we have to start with this because your toxic joy-sucker might treat you like you're nobody. But John 1.12 says that through Christ, you're a child of God. So they may see you as nobody, but that doesn't make you nobody, right? They may treat you like you're unlovable. But Romans 8.28 says God loves you so much that nothing can separate you from his love. They may treat you like you're not good enough. But Romans 15.7 says Christ has already accepted you. They might treat you like you're ugly, like you're weak, like you're not enough, but Genesis 1.27 tells us that you were created in God's image. They may tell you that you don't belong, 
1 Corinthians 12, 27 says you do belong. You're part of the body of Christ. They may treat you like nobody wants you. But 1 Peter 2, 9 says that God specifically chose you to be his very own. They may try to convince you or tell you or act like you're weak. But Romans 8.37 says that you're more than a conqueror. Luke 1.37 says nothing is impossible for you. They may treat you like you're powerless and you'll never be good enough. But follow this passage. This is really important. Colossians 2.9. I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus is complete. Jesus is complete with all the fullness of God in a body. You agree with that statement? It's in the Bible, you might as well, right? Do you believe, listen to what it's saying, right? All the fullness of God is in, the, in Jesus, is, is in Christ. So Christ is complete with all the fullness of God. And the very next verse says, in the same way, you are complete through your union with Christ. That's a big one. That's a big one. All the fullness of God lives in you. So they may tell you that you're powerless. They may treat you like you're never going to be good enough. But the Bible says that all the fullness of God lives in you. They may treat you like you're a mistake. They may treat you like you're a failure. But Ephesians 2.10 says you are God's masterpiece. They may treat you like you're a sinner. Oh, you'll never change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation in Christ. They may treat you like you're worthless. But Jesus believes that you're worth dying for. So it doesn't really matter how broken, toxic joy suckers see you. And it doesn't really matter how they treat you. They can cuss you and cut you and lie about you and attack you and desert you. But they can't change who you are. They can, they can degrade you, but they can't define you. Because who you really are may affect how broken people treat you. But how broken people treat you does not affect who you are. And we're going to be dealing with these toxic joy suckers for the next few weeks. And I think dealing with them starts with understanding you are not who they say you are. And you're not who the world says you are. And you're not who Satan says you are. And you're not even who you tell yourself you are. Who you are is who God says you are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, man, almost all of us have at some point in our life dealt with these toxic relationships. Some of us are dealing with them right now, and some of us are going to deal with them in the future. And so, Lord, we just, we just need your help with this. And as we're looking for this at this the next few weeks, I just pray that we can just start here, that we can just start with the understanding that who we are is who you say we are. And whatever these people, how they treat us, how they talk to us, how they talk about us, it may hurt, but they don't get to define us. They do get to do whatever they want to, but they don't get to decide who we are. You get to decide who we are. And so, Lord, as we're going through this, I pray that you would just open our eyes to what your word says about who we are in you. And then we will not be convinced. Just because of their pain or their demons or whatever they're dealing with, they look at us through a certain lens. That lens does not define who we really are. So God, as we're going forward today, anytime we face someone that's toxic, anytime we take, somebody tells us that we're something or treats us like we're something less than, will you remind us of who we really are? We are your children, chosen by you from the beginning of time to be your masterpiece. Lord, remind us of who we are as we face these toxic people. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Listen, I'm so glad you guys were here today. If you're visiting with us, I hope that you will stop at our Connection Center. Um, they'd like to give you a little gift, and I would just love to follow up with you this week and see how your visit went. Uh, last thing, um, after the second service today, we're going to be baptizing a couple of people. And if you'd like to be baptized, come talk to me between services. Or we could do, we're going to leave the baptistry out next week. If you'd like to be baptized next week, come talk to me today if you can. We'll see about getting you baptized next week. That is it. Have a great week.